All right, Forge family, let's gather around the Word. Last time we were together, uh, we had shared an introduction to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and there were some questions that followed that, and then there was some pertinent sharing on the topic. <clears throat> Paul and Silas had staggered and limped their way down 90 miles of the Via Ignatia, the, that uneven rock paving from, that runs coast to coast across Macedonia on the way to uh, Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Acts 17 recorded that Paul preached three Sabbaths. Uh, so he was in town you know, approximately 21 days. Uh, and then the Jews met um, Monday, Thursday, uh, Saturday. And um, chances are in their synagogues, he had a chance to teach other evenings, other times as well. <clears throat> uh, when he spoke in those settings, there was a vital response. And there were new converts. Some were Jews, some were God-fearers, some were leading women of the city. Uh, rejecting the message of a crucified and risen Messiah, the Jews started a riot. And uh, it ultimately resulted in Jason, who was the host of the missions team. He was, he was a Jew. He had... He had property, and he, and he was able to host this missions team. But the riot went to his house and grabbed him and perhaps some of the other new believers and dragged them before the magistrates because they said, this, these people have brought a teaching that there's a king other than Caesar. <clears throat> and if you'll note, that was the same message that the Jews had used in Jerusalem to get Jesus crucified. Uh, the missions team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they slipped away in the night and they moved west on that Via Ignatia, and then they went south. They got off the highway, and they went down to Berea. <clears throat> Paul's concerns for the new ecclesia, the new church, newly gathered groups of, of believers in Thessalonica, prompted him to send Timothy back quietly, to slip into the city and find out how the new, new believers fared. Uh, his verbal report back to Paul may have been in Athens or Corinth, we don't know, but that report prompted Paul to begin to dictate a letter using a secretary, or the term was emanuensis, someone who would take dictation and write it out for you. And Paul did that uh, for this letter, which we now know as 1 Thessalonians. So let's pray. Father of lights, thank you for the message of the risen Christ. It has, cher it has changed us, Lord. It, is, it has shaped us. It set us apart to you. We would be your servants. Lord, give us the boldness of the new believers in Thessalonica. Lord, the love of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And the faithfulness of Timothy, Lord. To, Lord we, we really want those mantles so that we too can use them to extend your kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, First line says, there's three senders, three people who send this letter. Now, we talked about Paul. We know who he is and some of his history. We talked in the introduction about Timothy. He came out of Lystra. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he joined the mission team in Lystra and then walked another 500 miles with Paul and Silas. And then there's Silvanus or Silas. Silas is the nickname in, in, in Greek. Um, so who is this guy, Silvanus? 
because his name pops up in a bunch of other passages. So to begin with, we see him first in Jerusalem amongst the, the, the church gatherings. And he was present when the report came into Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas regarding Gentiles who had accepted Jesus as a risen Messiah living and they'd, they'd received the Holy Spirit, which to the Jews was unbelievable. Nevertheless, James led a conference, a council in Jerusalem, listened to that report, and then the council crafted this set of simple directions to go back to the new Gentile believers. <clears throat> and it was hand-carried from Jerusalem to Antioch and Syria. Silas was part of that team. Now, he arrives in, in Antioch. There's church there, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul comes along behind him. And when Paul arrives there, Paul announces he's going on a second missionary journey. Barnabas says, yeah, I'm going with you, and we're going to take John Mark again. And Paul says, I'm having none of that. Because John Mark had bailed. John Mark had pulled out of that missions, first missions team for whatever reason. We don't know. We know later he was restored. Okay, Paul calls for him when he's in Rome, says he's valuable to me. But at that time, Paul was not going to trust him. Again, that in, in that time. So Barnabas takes John Mark and they go left. They go to Cyprus. They get aboard ship. They go out to sea and they go to Cyprus. And Paul turns to Silas and says, you're with me. And they start walking. And it's some 800, 900 miles to get from Antioch overland through Asia Minor across the, the top end of the, uh, whichever sea that is, at the Bosporus. <clears throat> and, uh, and then walk through Philippi and down to, to Thessalonica. Now, <clears throat> in Philippi, both Paul and Silas were hung up and beaten with rods. Both Paul and Silas were thrown into the dungeon and chained. Both Paul and Silas were lifting their hands, which would have caused their wounds to bleed more. To praise God, to thank God that he, uh, Silas, and he, Paul, could say, Lord, it is an honor to suffer for the cause of Christ. And there was a horrific earthquake through Philippi, and it shook the foundations of that underground prison, and the bolts that held their shackles to the stone wall came loose, and they're free. Okay, and, and there's another story there in Philippi. But as they leave town, they have to walk carefully. It's an uneven rock path. If they misstep, if they stumble, they will twist and open the wounds on their back, and they'll bleed again. So it's 90 miles, but it probably took them weeks to get up to speed, to get over being beaten. When they arrive in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas both are part of the teaching team in the synagogues. <clears throat> and then all three of that missions team is whisked out of town in the night to get away. Uh, we know later in his life, perhaps after Paul's death, Silas served with the Apostle Peter. And that is believed that he was the one who delivered the letter that we know of, excuse me, as 1 Peter. So 1 Thessalonians was dictated by Paul, but Silas was part of the sending team. <clears throat> so here in verse 1, the senders address this letter to the ecclesia. Now I've used the term, and some of you are very familiar with that. That's a Greek word that, that is translated as church. Okay? But ecclesias were an authorized gathering, one that was empowered to act uh, on the authority of a higher power. 
you are sitting in one of those gatherings at this moment. Caesars had ecclesias to do their bidding. And the risen Lord Jesus, God the Father and Holy Spirit, they're clearly the authorities that reign over the church and direct its ways. And so when people gathered into into these meetings, they gathered under the authority of the Trinity. The new believers in Thessalonica... Uh, When they gathered, they weren't cringing. They didn't have their head down. They weren't whimpering. But rather, they stood tall. They took their persecution, and they rejoiced in the Lord. Now, the teams that sent them a greeting that said, grace and peace to you. So grace is a Greek concept. Uh, It wasn't the Hebrew concept. Um, Hebrew had hesed, which was the loyal love, the faithful love. The royal love, if you will, of, of typically of God for his people Israel. So 200 years before Christ, the Hebrew scriptures were translated in Alexandria from Hebrew into Greek. And when they did, the translators did that, they chose from the word hesed to translate that concept of loyal love, um, faithful love, into the Greek word charis, which is grace. Likewise, the second word here is peace, which in Greek is erene. Okay, it's very close to the Hebrew word of, of shalom, meaning nothing missing, nothing lacking, nothing pushing on you. You know, you're, you're able, you are at peace. Okay? <clears throat> the team is sending God's faithful love and kindness wrapped in his peace to the church in Thessalonica. And then verse 2 and 3 says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So this giving of thanks is in the present tense. So it's ongoing. It's not a one-off. It's not, oh, I said it. Once is enough. You know, it's like, it's like a parent says, oh, I'm proud of you. And then you never hear that again. I love you. You never hear it. Here, okay, this Thanksgiving is an ongoing action. The team gathered regularly to listen, you know, and and they they gathered for listening prayer. They weren't just to run in and say, oh, God, here's what we need, here's what we need, here's what we need. They came and they they sat and they listened and they waited. And then as, as things came up inside of them, they would bring it to the Lord, okay? And, and then they would make intercession for those things. And when the needs potentially of this little church or churches in Thessalonica came up, it would have been early and often in Paul's heart. I left those people. I taught them and left them. You know, when that happened, he and Timothy and Silas, you know, would, would stick with it. They would pray for those people. Okay? <clears throat> and Timothy, obviously, Timothy had been sent off to get that report back of how the ecclesia was doing. Um, the report back by Timothy had resulted in this ongoing, enhanced giving of thanks and regular, no time constraints, urgent prayer for what was going on in Thessalonica. Constantly, actively, continually, the team was holding them up to the Father, keeping in mind the report of the working out of their faith okay, and their application of their faith in life and practice. And next, Paul, Silas, and Timothy note that there's a labor of love, which is agape. Okay, the word for labor here is kratos, I think it is. <clears throat> uh, it means toil. It means back-breaking 
hard, sweaty, exhaustive work. And that's what they did. They took the agape love of God and they worked it out in their self-sacrifice. First, to care for each other's needs around them in the fellowship and then to the, to the lost ones outside of that fellowship and they turned it into a labor of love. <clears throat> Lastly, the team notes the steadfastness. Okay, that's a en- word for endurance. You just hang in there and you don't quit. Okay? And in this case, the endurance of the hope that was displayed by the ecclesia. This is Paul's first writing of this triad, which pops up in a bunch of other of his letters. Remember what it is? Faith, hope, and love? Well, here it's love, faith, and hope. Okay? Or faith, love, and hope. He, he mixes it. He shuffles it. It's the same passion. Okay? This is not soft ground. This is not gushy, emotional stuff. This is bedrock foundation for the spiritual growth of the individuals in the ecclesia, their ministry to the body, and then as well to the lost. Now, where is that hope placed? Where do you settle that hope? Okay, it's in the hope in Christ, now present with the Father, sitting at the right hand, ever making intercession, as well as the hope in his soon return for his bride, the church. That promised soon return was a fierce, flaming presence in Thessalonica. Verse 4 and 5. It continues the verse, started in verse 2. He says, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So in that first little short phrase, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. Okay, In that short phrase, two things there are highlighted. When you receive the gospel message into your being, into your heart of hearts, it is because you are beloved of God. And you are chosen. Now, it was true in Israel. God's, that, that was true. You know, they believed that. They, they recognized that of God's chosen people. Oh, I'm loved and I'm chosen. These are God's, I'm God's people. But suddenly in Macedonia, there's rising a beloved chosen people of God who are not Jews. Some translators and interpreters use this little phrase to launch into extended theological constructs on the topic of elect or election. Okay? The simple answer to that is that means you were chosen. William Barclay wrote, Quote, the phrase beloved by God was a phrase which the Jews applied only to supremely great men like Moses and Solomon and to the nation of Israel itself. Now, the greatest privilege of the greatest men of God's chosen people has been extended to the humblest of the Gentiles. Uh, now, the illustration I like uh, perhaps the most at these theological pinch points, if you will, about Am I in? Am I saved? Am I out? Was I called? Am I chosen? Etc. It's an illustration that says there's a doorway. Okay, on one side of the door it says whosoever will may come. But it's a narrow door and it is entered on your knees and you can bring nothing with you. On the inside, it's a wide door and it says chosen, 
or elect, if you will, chosen from before the foundations of the world. Now, the labels on the both sides of that door are theologically correct. And it was the team writing to the Thessalonian ecclesia that set it out. They placed their faith in the risen Christ. And now Paul, Silas, and Timothy were writing to say that they recognized and they know by observation, by observing them, that those in those churches were chosen. Okay? They became elect of God. Because those who are on this side of the, the door can see the life of the Holy Spirit in individuals and go, that's the real deal. Or, occasionally, there are those who attempt to shuffle in and you go, where, where's the joy? Where are the works of God? Where, where is it that God you know, is evidenced in your life, in your heart? And you pray for those accordingly. It's not your job to make that call, but you go, don't think that looks like election to me. Paul continues with the fact that the good news, the gospel that came to these new believers did not just rely on good words, powerful words, convicting words, religious words, hope-filled words, but also the good news came with power, the power of God and of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote of the works of God's power displayed to authenticate Holy Spirit in the midst of the churches. And it resulted in a full conviction you know, they, amongst the team. They went, God did that here. That means this is the real deal. Okay? And it was in the hearts of the new brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. This is a true and living God because Maria walked in and she was desperately sick and she was healed and she's dancing before the Lord, etc. Or if there's a Greek word for Maria, yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Gary Shogren wrote, with few exceptions, the Jews did not regard themselves as people of the Spirit. Two decades earlier, the young rabbi Saul engaged in religious work that was in the main verbal. Teaching, dialogue, argument, counter-argument, and the citation of tradition. It is only as an apostle of the new covenant that he finds himself empowered by that Spirit of whom the ancients prophesied. Paul also says that the ecclesia could see, could observe, could test what kind of men the team had proved themselves to be in the midst and in their actions and in their prayer and the results of those prayers. It vetted the good news of the risen Christ. Paul uses reminder language here and five other places through 1 Thessalonians. Because he's going to call to their mind. Remember we talked about this? Remember when I was with you when this happened? He's going to do that five more times. Verses 68, 68 says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth for, from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Now there's eight passages through the epistles of Paul 
where Paul urges the recipients of his epistles to mimic him, to copy out his faith. And even for some, like Timothy or Silas or others, you know, those who are rising to leadership, to have them uh, take on his way of life and ministry. Here, Paul notes that the new believers in Thessalonica had done so spontaneously, receiving the gospel and acting it out just like Paul. Now, I smell smoke. Okay, that's not our dinner. Okay. Or something else in the building. I'm, I'm just paying attention. Yeah, all right. Thank you, Lord. We pray for protection from wherever that is. Okay. Back to the text. Okay, further, the brothers and sisters, the new ones in, in Thessalonica, just spontaneously began to, everything they heard about Jesus, that's what they did. Everything that they imagined that Jesus would do, they did that. <clears throat> and the reception of the good news of the risen Christ occurred in the midst of their breaking away from their past engagement in an earthly, dark, wicked culture with a demonic worldview. And in exchange, they began to pursue their citizenship in heaven. In so doing, families would have had disagreements and disruptions. Jobs were probably lost. Some became disenfranchised from former friends and associates. Loans were called. Mortgages and contracts were canceled. Marriages were annulled. Adoptions reversed. Hot words exchanged on the street and in private, perhaps even in the synagogue. Because those who were Jews that had left, they pulled themselves away from the family support system that the synagogue was to them in their city. The Greek word for such trials is flipsis. It means I have a lisp too. Okay, flipsis. It speaks of trouble that inflicts distress, oppression, affliction, and tribulation. Now, last time in the introduction, we talked about regions of earth or nations where if you come to Christ in that nation and it's a public thing and it's known, you may suffer from your family, you may suffer from your neighborhood or your community or your tribal group, you may become a martyr, or you may be so cast out that you suffer both physically and in, and in, in an inner way. In both the Thessalonian world and in the modern world, those sufferings are met with the joy of Holy Spirit. See, um, in the hearts and minds of those who trust in Christ, it is that joy of the Lord that pushes back Satan's best efforts to crumble your life, to immolate your life, to drown, whatever it is, to do away with you and what you believe. And it pushes back so that you can stand. And you're not ashamed. So in contrast, the joy of the Thessalonians had rapidly spread outward by road, by ship, by letter, reaching other churches in Macedonia and as far south as Achaia and beyond. Now if you had that, that little map that I gave you in the introduction, Achaia is kind of this, there's a, there's a little neck of land and then there's this big almost an island kind of thing but it's still connected to Greece and that's where Corinth and Athens are located okay so the word of what happened in Thessalonica had leaped outwards
The report of their joy was so evident in the marketplace that Paul wrote back to them, we have no need to say anything. Another way to say that is, Thessalonica, you've got this. Verses 9 and 10 amplifies the previous three verses. Paul wrote that there were private individuals who had reported to the missions team that real conversions had taken place. Real joy had been the response and suffering, and real evangelism broke out as the result, confirming the message of how the Thessalonians had turned from idols and begun to serve a living and true God. The news out of the churches in Thessalonica had indeed sounded forth. Elsewhere in the ancient world, that same term sounded forth. Sometimes it's used to describe a trumpet blast or the clap of thunder, the, the, the redounding shaking of, of, a, of a thunder blast. <clears throat> Here, it went from mouth to ear to heart to spirit to darkened, in darkened spirit so that the listeners had their spirits awakened and they began to receive the good news with gladness where even, where, you know, the, the, the message, wherever the message was spoken and dead displayed. Okay, there was active evangelism that was done one-on-one, one-on groups, however it happened. Lastly, Paul's, Paul writes that the Thessalonians are waiting for the soon return of Jesus. Now, the word wait and the word hope, they're, they're very closely, they're both synony- they're synonyms kind of of each other in both Old Testament and New Testament. As they waited, their hope in the living and true God and in his promises kept them facing outward to the lost. They proclaimed that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, seated in heaven, and was coming to deliver them from the wrath that is to come. So, Forge family, in the first ten verses, Paul affirms, he's not introducing them because he already taught them, he affirms seven key doctrines of our faith. Number one, conversion. Now, this differs vastly from just saying a prayer and sort of tripping out of a meeting and going on about your business and life. At its core, it is the turning away from darkness to light, to the, and it's to the light of Christ and clinging to him in all things. Relationships, emotions, ideas, possessions, the works. Number two, the true and living God. Okay, the Trinity was introduced in the Ecclesias in Thessalonica. <clears throat> uh, and it was, uh, they saw, demonstrated before them, an alive and powerful, a loving and redeeming God. Idolatry, number three, has no place in the redeemed heart. It is to be dropped and never returned to. Number four, Jesus is the Son of God. God sent his only begotten unique Son into the world to be the Savior of mankind. Number five, the the second coming of Christ was introduced immediately to the new converts. Now, think with me. When was the last time you were in an evangelistic meeting where people were coming forward and they were given instructions. You pray this prayer after me. Lord, I come, in, come into my heart, etc. At the end of it, they're given instructions. Read your Bible every day. Go to church. Tithe. You know, uh, call on the Lord in prayer. When did you last hear anyone instruct someone and hope 
in the Lord's soon return. Has that ever happened to you? Do you ever, do you ever remember hearing that? This was, this was spoken of sometime in the first three weeks of belief in Thessalonica to the believers. Jesus, now reigning at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession, has promised to return for his bride, the church. Number six, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to life evidenced to the world that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And seven, deliverance from the wrath to come. Well, that's promised here. This is the first New Testament prophecy of the day of the Lord, if you will, where he pours out his judgment on those who hate him, hate his people, the Jews, and hate their Messiah. Now, Forge family, given that most of our, conver- uh, our conversion experiences have a little age on them, mine does, okay? Let the scriptures stir you, awaken you to the remembrance of new birth, one that was clean and whole and free from guilt and shame and filled with joy. We may not yet have suffered for our faith in awful ways, but that may come. Prepare yourselves to announce aloud, to trumpet forth, to, re, you know, to make that sound afresh about the good news of Jesus, risen from the dead and living in your hearts. The public figures in America who love Jesus and are vocal about him and his values are being roundly cursed, hated, disregarded, and despised. In almost every state house across the country, there are laws being written and presented to cut away the perceived cancer that the church is, to cut away the belief in Christ from American culture. Our time may come. Start now to seek the joy of the Lord. Do a personal inventory of those seven key doctrines listed there. Are they vigorously true in your life? When you speak that, is there a rise of your spirit? Does the mention of any of those seven galvanize your faith and move you to share about Jesus? Now remember the hope of the Thessalonians that turned them outward to the lost. That same hope does not flourish when it's turned inward. When it becomes entangled in the affairs of life into which Christ is not invited. If you find yourself turned inward and tangled, ask Jesus for forgiveness and then seize again that hope, that waiting expectancy of the living and true God manifesting himself in your life and in the lives of those you will speak to of his love and power. Let that show on your face and in your words. And in what you do. Let's pray. Living a true God. We too. With our brothers and sisters. Of old from Thessalonia. And our brothers and sisters. Who are around us globally today. We choose to have you come alive within us. We want to leak joy. And gossip. All the things the Lord has revealed to us. We want to mimic you. Jesus by the power and presence of Holy Spirit 
so that those around us are drawn to us. We want to stand against a dark culture by shedding light as we go, speaking light as we go, doing light as we go. We want to hear from the Holy Spirit. We want to hear from the Holy Spirit. You've got this. In Jesus' name, amen.